You're listening to In My Father's House with our pastor and teacher, Mike Venezia, Senior Pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in New York City, New York. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be, oh, my heart will not be troubled. I remember what you said. We're so thankful. God is relentless in pursuing us. He'll never let us go. He'll never let you go. Isn't that true? How many times have we like turned our back upon God and he's always there, right? He's always willing to restore us uh, to our place of fellowship, of sonship, of daughtership. And uh, God is so faithful uh, to do that. So anyway, that's exactly what's going on here with these 10 uh, sons of Jacob, Joseph's 10 brothers. God moved. Have you ever had a pet dog? If you have, then you probably know what it's like to be loved pretty unconditionally. Sure, it might not always be just happiness with dogs, but you never doubt their love for you, right? In a weird way, that's pretty similar to God's love. In today's message, Pastor Mike reminds us that no matter how much we fail and fall short, God will always love us. While sometimes we might feel disappointment, fear, or even anger with God, That never means he stops loving us. Now here's Pastor Mike in the book of Genesis chapter 42 as he begins his message, Our Conscience and God. So chapter 42, beginning in verse 1. When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, why do you look at one another? So let me set this up for you. I mean, obviously now throughout the land, throughout the world at this particular time, there was a grievous famine and food was extremely scarce. But food could be found in Egypt because of Joseph's wise counsel in the interpretation of Pharaoh's dream. There would be two periods of seven, the first of which would be a time of seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of plight and famine. And so Joseph's counsel to the king, Pharaoh of Egypt, was to store up the food during the seven years of plenty so that you would have enough to sustain you during the seven years of famine. And so during the seven years of famine, just to you know, give you the time frame that, of what's going on here in chapter 42, uh, people have become aware of the fact that there's only food in Egypt to be bought and to be found. And so the people are streaming in now uh, to get a hold of that food, to sustain them. So that's what's going on here. And so Jacob is encouraging his sons to go down to Egypt to buy that food. Verse 2, and he said, Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down 
to that place and buy for us there, that we may live and not die. And so Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin, the youngest, with the other brothers. For he said, lest some calamity befall him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Okay, so I want to talk about this very unusual mechanism that God has placed innately, purposely, within all of us, called a conscience. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. And let me begin by saying our conscience is a good thing. Well, I mean, you know, you don't have to be a genius to figure that out. I mean, if our conscience has come from God, well, then it has to be a a good thing. So our conscience is a good thing. That is, when we yield to its urgings. But unfortunately, I think there are many and I just want to underscore that word, many, without any reservations whatsoever. There are many who beat their conscience down, and thus it has become seared. It has been put to sleep. And I personally believe, <clears throat> excuse me, that this is one of the reasons why we have all of the evil there is in the world today. And so our conscience, given to us by God, is meant to keep us on track, in tune with that which is good, with that which is of God. Now, there's also times, as you know, I'm sure this has been your experience as well, when our conscience can plague us, can gnaw at us. You know, uh, I heard this story about this one man who was obviously struggling to put his conscience to rest, And he wrote to the government saying, I have cheated on my income tax return and I can't sleep. So here's a check for $75. And if I still can't sleep, I'll send you the balance. (laughs) Obviously, this man didn't go all the way, right? And, uh, but you know how that works, right? And, uh, you know, uh, anonymously, In 1811, this is very interesting, people, beginning in 1811, the United States government actually set up this fund. The fund was known as the Federal Conscience Fund. And since 1811, right here in the United States of America, the government, IRS, have received millions and millions of dollars from people who have cheated on their income tax. And that's an actual statistic. It began in 1811, and they deemed it the Federal Conscience Fund, just simply because there wasn't a fund that even existed, but all of a sudden they they were inundated by these letters that were sent by people, obviously because of their conscience was gnawing away at them. They felt as if, you know, they didn't give Uncle Sam his deserves, and so they sent off these checks, you know, with the amounts that they thought that they had cheated Uncle Sam of. It's true. It's actually a true uh, story. Folks, our conscience is a very real, powerful, helpful influence in our lives. And we should immediately yield to it. But again, I fear, as I've already suggested, too many work to silence it. You know, the whole process goes 
on something like this. For example, you are tempted to do something you should not do. And so your conscience immediately thunders, no, so you don't do it. Now, that's a good thing. That's your immediate response. You don't do it. That's a good thing. But then you begin to work on your conscience. You begin to talk to your conscience. You say, you know, you were right, conscience, to tell me I shouldn't for the reason given me, but I've been thinking it over, and what about this reason? Again, your conscience says no, but this time, not as loudly as before. Okay, so what do we do then? Well, about a week later or so, you try again. You say to your conscience, yes, I know that neither of those first two reasons were very good, but I think maybe I could do it for these reasons. And you go on and on and on until your conscience is beat down, until your conscience is silenced, and then finally, guess what? You go and do the very thing that your conscience has told you not to do. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Have you ever been there before? Or am I the only reprobate in the room this morning? And uh, you know, it, it kind of goes something exactly like that. You know, someone said, and I quote, our conscience apart from God's light is like a trained dog. You whistle once, it will stand up. You whistle twice, it will roll over. The third time, it will play dead. And it's, and it's actually true. That's a great analogy. So anyway, in Genesis chapter 42, that was, I've gone a long way to set up chapter 42. So anyway, in Genesis chapter 42, we come to now this matter of conscience. And largely, it's the story of Joseph's 10 brothers and their conscience. But more importantly, and this is really what we want to focus in on, what I want to draw your attention to, it's also about God working through many devices, circumstances, to awaken their nearly dead consciences. I'm talking about the 10 brothers now. And to bring them to a place of repentance and cleansing. Now, this obviously was very important to God. Why would you imagine it would be very important to God? Well, think about who those 10 brothers were. They represented the 10 tribes of Israel that would ultimately become the nation of Israel. So he had to bring them to a place of repentance. He had to get them to a place of cleansing. Remember, he was going to make of them a great nation that ultimately the Savior would come forth from. So God is very concerned about what's going on here. He's very concerned about these 10 men. Now, we don't know much about the state of their hearts leading up to this chapter 42. Uh, just to date it, it's been some 13 years, that is, since they betrayed their brother Joseph and sold him into slavery. And now through an unusual series of circumstances, he's elevated, remember last time together we talked about this, to second only to Pharaoh. He's sort of become the prime minister of the nation of Egypt, which is, at that time was the most powerful nation upon the face of the earth. And he's been given charge to see to all those who come down during the seven years of famine to purchase the food. He's been given charge by the king to see to all of those affairs, to take control of all of those things. But anyway, nevertheless, we don't know much about the state of these brothers' hearts leading up to chapter 42. It's been 13 years. 
this section of the book of Genesis is sort of quiet concerning them, but they were guilty of a great wickedness. That is what they had done to Joseph, safe to say. They were unsaved men. So God is working. He's working through their consciences. And so this morning, we want to examine how he, that is God, shines upon a darkened conscience, stirs it, and brings it to repentance. So that if, you know, if we're in that same situation, that we'll give ourselves to what our conscience is telling us, as God works through our conscience to bring us to that place of repentance, restoration, and cleansing. And I suspect that if not presently, sometime during the future, you know, uh, we'll appreciate this message. And it'll just lend itself to our being uh, willing to immediately yield to our conscience's promptings. Now, obviously, there was still hope for these guys because notice, let's go back to our text now. What do we read here in verse 1, chapter 42 and verse 1? And I don't know, you've probably read this before, but maybe you haven't considered it from this perspective. When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, why do you look at one another? So obviously, according to what is recorded here in verse 1, there was still hope for these guys. So put yourself in their shoes. They must have thought, "Uh uh-oh, dad, Jacob, said the E word. What's the E word? Egypt. Listen, you see what's exactly going on here in verse 1? They're staring at each other. They're kind of dumbfounded. They're just looking at one another. He said Egypt. Did he say Egypt? I think he said Egypt, right? Notice what he says. Why are you looking at one another? Have you ever been in a situation like that where maybe you're taking control of the conversation and, and uh, man, you hit on something and then all of a sudden everybody that's present in that circle you know, just stops and they start looking at one another like, did he say Egypt? Or did he say this? Or did he say that? And you know what's going on? They're pricked in their conscience. That's what's going on with these guys. I don't know exactly the way it may have worked in your own experience and being in that kind of a conversation. You know, there's this, so they're staring at each other. You know, there's this proverb that states, never speak of rope in the house of a hangman. And I think that would be appropriate here in this case. You see, when dad, Jacob, said to his sons, Egypt, they flashed on their little episode with Joseph. Their betrayal of him, their lies, their treachery. They could probably hear at that moment the pleas of Joseph coming from that hole that they dug and threw him in for mercy. You see, they tried to put that incident from their minds, but guess what? They couldn't. Why couldn't they? Because of their conscience. You see, every time Joseph's name was mentioned or the subject of Egypt had come up, they were pricked in their conscience. The glances, the stares at each other. Egypt? Did you say Egypt, Dad? (laughs) Judah must have looked over towards Reuben. Reuben, at the same time, must have looked over to Simeon and so on. Levi, Zebulun. And so Jacob asks the question, why 
Do you keep looking at each other? Verse 1. Did you, were you ever aware of that before? How many times have you read this text of Scripture and you just passed over that whole thing, right? They're being pricked in their conscience. So anyway, I think the fact that Joseph's brothers look guilty at one another instead of taking action concerning the food in Egypt shows that their consciences were not entirely dead. Maybe asleep, but not entirely uh, dead. But think about this. If nothing more had happened in this story than the mere mention of Egypt, these brothers would have gone on in their sinful ways and died unrepentant. But thank God for God, because God moved. And how did he do that? And what did he use? He used the famine, right? You know, think about this in your own life. You know, let's bring this down to personal terms. Maybe there's something going on, and, and uh, you know, a lot of the things that go on in our lives is really for the purpose of God getting our attention. It is, it is really true. You know, the next time that you're going through some difficulty, some irritation in your life, where things get a little uncomfortable, I would just stop and think and pray and ask God, God, is this, has this come from you? Are you trying to say something to me? Lord, are you trying to get my attention? Now, that may be the case, it may not be, but God is faithful enough to let you know the answer to that question. You know? That's exact. We go off on these tangents and do our own thing, and, and uh, you know, the things that are important are left behind, or we get involved in things that we as Christians should never get involved in, and, and God's trying to get us back. But God is so faithful, never to leave us alone. You know, in fact, that's what my wife's message is about. Girls, you're really in for a treat, and uh, you, you've often heard me refer to God as the hound of heaven. That's where she got the title of that message. But, well, I ripped it off of other teachers of the Bible, but uh, isn't that a wonderful way that God has recommended to us as the hound of heaven? He never lets us go. Have you ever been around a puppy? And, uh, and that's, that's, the idea. that's where that whole idea comes from, the hound of heaven. Have you ever been around a puppy? All they want to do is play. When they're not sleeping or eating, all they want to do is play. And they're always like going for the hem of your pants. They're always, you know? And, uh, you know, when we were up in Alaska, we had, a, we had a sled dog team of Malmutes. And one of our bitches threw 11 pups. 11 pups. So in a moment, we went from, like, having three Alaskan Malmutes to, like, having 14 Alaskan Malmutes. And so we raised them. You know, you got to... Before we farmed them out and sent them all over the United States, really, for people out of the churches, you know, acquaintances of ours and, and all of that, you know, they had to be uh, uh, weaned by their, by their mother uh, who threw the 11 pups. So we had, the, we had these puppies for a couple of months before we sent them out. And it, it was a riot, I'm telling you. They're always fighting with each other. They're always biting at you. And, and these, these Malmutes, sort of like huskies, if you're not, if you're not familiar with a Malmute, is they're, they're huskies only. Um, they're not really bred for sled as sled dogs, they're more bred for carrying loads. You'll, you'll see uh, Malmutes with backpacks on their backs. And we had backpacks for our, our dogs. We used to go uh, backpacking out west, and we used to have these uh, saddlebags that we had made for our dogs. So they used to carry all of our, 
our food and all of our supplies and, and, and those, sort, those sorts of uh, things. But anyway, so that's what a Malmute is. But they're very akin to a wolf. They're wild. In fact, some of my dogs, if, if you let them off of their chains, uh, they wanted to sleep, always wanted to sleep outdoors. They never wanted to come into our cabin when we were up in Alaska. They always wanted to sleep outdoors. But you had to chain them because they would wander around the village and more than once they would come back with someone's duck. You know, they would raid someone, someone's pen, come back with a duck or a chicken, or, and, uh, which always was a real problem, you know, for us. So they're very akin to a wolf. So they're always biting, they're always fighting. Uh, they're not what you would call domestic animals. They're not very domesticated. So man, they would always, you know, when they would see us and when it was time to, to feed them, all of the little pups would come and they would all be nipping at our, the hem of our, 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 our They would never let us go. They would never give us a break. And thus, you know, the reference, the, in the analogy, God, the hound of heaven, who never lets us go. And, and that's where Diane is getting her message from. Uh, that's the idea that her message comes from, uh, that she's going to be sharing with the Women's Fellowship. She's just a plug for my wife. You definitely want to come on out and hear it. And we're so thankful. God is relentless in pursuing us. He'll never let us go. He'll never let you go. Isn't that true? How many times have we like turned our back upon God and he's always there, right? He's always willing to restore us uh, to our place of fellowship, of sonship, of daughtership. And uh, God is so faithful uh, to do that. So anyway, that's exactly what's going on here with these 10 uh, sons of Jacob, Joseph's 10 brothers. God moved. How did he move? How did he once again get them back on the right track? How did he once again get their attention? The famine in the land. Now, again, let's bring this down to personal terms. You might be experiencing a famine in your life. That you know what? It never had to go that far. What's the famine that you're experiencing right now? And uh, you fill in the blank. I don't want anyone to volunteer, you know, a response, but just think about that in your own life. Are there things lacking in your life right now? It may be because of the fact that God is just simply, and it's, you know, it's a demonstration of love, not, not necessarily even judgment, although it might be judgment. It's something, again, that you ought to question. It's also something you ought to bring before God and, and uh, you know, in prayer. But anyway, God moved. How did he move? He brought a famine. He brought a bit of material want into their lives so they, as one writer put it, could no longer remain outwardly content in the land of Canaan, but were forced out of their peaceful backyard pond into new waters. In my father's house, there's a place for me. In my father's house, where I long to be. Here at In My Father's House, we're going through the book of Genesis, where the story of the beginning is told. God made light and said that it's good. God made plants and trees and said that it's good. God made animals on land and in the sea, and he said that it's good. And then God made man, and he said that it is very good. 
Creation didn't stop at the end of the sixth day. Creating is an inherent part of who God is and what He does. Look around you. What do you see? New plants, new trees, new animals, each one unique in how it grows. And God is still saying it is good. God is in the business of creating new people out of old ones, undoing the inherent brokenness. When you were born again, a new creation, God looked at you and said that you are very good. He has made you new and restored you to the place you were designed to fill. You've been listening to In My Father's House with Pastor Mike Venizio. This is a ministry out of Harvest Christian Fellowship in Midtown Manhattan. We'd love to see you here. You can find all the information you need, including service times, on our website, harvestnyc.org. That's harvestnyc.org. If you're listening outside of Manhattan, we'd love to know that, too. Please send us a quick note at harvestnyc at verizon.net. That's harvestnyc at verizon.net. It's a great encouragement to Pastor Mike and the team at In My Father's House to hear where these messages are being listened to. We hope you'll come back and see us again, because there's no better place to be than in my father's house.